Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Big Daddy Liberty and Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Hello and welcome to this Tuesday's edition of the IRR show. I'm flying solo again because Big Daddy Liberty is on his way to Cape Town uh, to do all sorts of exciting and interesting things. So he's left me alone in the studio in Johannesburg to engage you and inform you about what is happening, where we're going and what we're thinking at the moment on everything political. If you, I would encourage you over and above, to read our online newspaper, The Daily Friend, which has opinions, news items, videos, and podcasts, and it can be easily accessed on dailyfriend.co.za. I will be having a very, very interesting guest later on in the program, Mr. John K. Berman, who for 30 years was the CEO of the Institute of Race Relations. He is a foremost... uh, Liberal, he went from student politics to Rhodes Scholar to journalist, uh, ran Daily Mail, Financial Mail, and ultimately to CEO, and has that had the privilege insight from a political point of view of running right through the apartheid era into the period of change and into the period of democracy. And I want to raise with him some of the issues pertaining to broadly. What's, what was most striking about apartheid and then what is striking about the, the new dispensation and at what point he became aware that we may be in trouble going into democracy rather than seeing it as a, as, as the freedom and the opportunity that we'd all wish for. But for the moment, let's have a look at the issues we, in the news and without a doubt in the mo- at the moment is probably that almost perfect storm of the coronavirus, the drop in the oil price, which apparently um, is the greatest fall. It fell by 30%. It's the greatest fall since the 1991 Gulf War. And it is largely pertaining to a, a, a spat between Russia and Saudi Arabia about cutting production in order to stabilize the market. But the effect it's having is not just the effect on our stock exchange on an, an our growth rate, but it, it's affecting Japanese stocks down by 6%, British stocks 7%, uh, the USA uh, Treasury yield below 0.5% for the first, for a long time, and the 30%, 30 year yield has dropped um, under 1%. So, uh, Norway, the Norway's Krona, for example, has shown the biggest slide since the mid 1980s. So, all of this has sort of happened in an extraordinarily short period of time. Um, it, it may bounce back quickly, but the combination of factors as well as the slowdown on um, supply chain and the, the supply chain particularly runs through China and the, uh, uh, the effect on the, on the markets across the world is additionally devastating. So these things can happen quickly and can be quite uh, uh, devastating. Plummeting. Well, the dollar against the rand went has went down by eight percent. It has almost 17, um, seventeen rand to the dollar. So, if coronavirus isn't enough to prevent you from travelling, then the exchange rate should be. 
Um, the fascinating thing is that these, this extraordinary upending of, of the political scene could not have been forecast. And that is one of the, I suppose one of the things we really have to be very sober about is that with all the forecasting that may be available and which people may be able to do, governments, markets, etc., sometimes things happen that one cannot possibly predict. And the coronavirus and everything that has emanated from that is one of those events. Um, I suppose we'll call it a black swan event. I see that South African Airways has started retrenchment consultations and that 4,700 jobs are on the line. The business rescue practitioners are the people who are going to be responsible for this process. Now, the good news, and I do put that in quotes, is that SAA appears to be finally being treated like a normal business entity, and that is when when trouble hits and, and income is down, you do have to consider, amongst other things, not only and not first and foremost, but you do have to have to consider the retrenchment of staff. And this could be a watershed for what happens in the other SOEs. The, the, it was an interesting item in the Spectator last week, I think, about the fact that the coronavirus and all the effects flowing from it, it, it will, it will, will result in a, an increasing antipathy towards globalization and that more and more production will be brought home, so to speak, rather than, um, rather than happening, for example, predominantly in China. So things, things are se- definitely have a, a different edge and, and reflect to some extent um, the support of um, pr- pr- the p- political su- the political situation as it is in Britain and in America, where you have very you have leaders, president, prime minister, who are looking to really shoring up their own countries rather than being beholden to other countries for their for their economics. So we'll we'll watch that with interest. And er- uh, something has happened that I'm particularly interested in because I followed it very closely during. Um, during FISMAS fall. Now, FISMAS fall essentially ran from 2015 to 2017 in, in the demand for free higher education, which was practically almost impossible to achieve, and it was only achieved by Jacob Zuma showing his middle finger to the ANC as he was, as he was leaving power by granting free tertiary education. In a society that cannot afford it, and we are now seeing a lot of... Uh, protests as a result of it. But let's go back to the original FISMAS 4. The news came out that Ngrebord Lamini, who was a leader of FISMAS 4, was sentenced to two and a half years for inter alia public violence and other actions during the FISMAS 4 protests during, I think it was 2016 in particular. Now, what's interesting about this is that he was a very controversial figure. Um, generally, people from outside didn't didn't like him he he seemed only aggressive possibly even worse than that and finally he and as you will know from previously he and another student leader or student participant shall we say have actually got criminal um, convictions for the actions that took place during the protest. And the, the importance of this is to show that it doesn't matter whether the cause is good or bad, and that is a matter for opinion. The bottom line is what do you do in pursuit of that cause? And the reality is that very many more 
participants in those protests should have been tried and convicted for criminal action but weren't. So the fact that two people have criminal records for that behavior should send a message out that the, 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 the means, the ends do not justify the means. Um, and just to give a, perhaps a, a, a final look at South Africa in its least attractive light, there was a report about a woman who was raped in a toilet in the Utenhag Public Library. Now, there's just that sense that when rape comes to a public library, we've we've hit a certain low. Uh, not to say we haven't hit a low already. We've, we've hit some awful criminal lows. But there's something about a rape in a library which I think people would see as a space that is safe to read and study and work in in relative silence and would never associate the the heinous criminal action of a rape with an environment like that. And it just perhaps points to a complete lawlessness that is not being addressed. Uh, the best one can hope for is a conviction on this rape and imprisonment of the rapist who once convicted. The final point perhaps to raise this morning before our special guest comes in is that Reports on the land expropriation meetings that have been held in uh, a number of provinces and recently completed in KZN and the Northwest have the report being that amending the Section 25 of the Constitution to allow for expropriation without compensation is necessary to redress past problems and that these comments are being made by members of communities who are attending those meetings. That may well be so, but it is so distinctly and, f- and finally the the, uh, the narrative of the ANC that one has to wonder about it. I, uh, I'm sorry to be a little bit cynical about it. But as we're coming up to this, the ad break, I would just like to remind you for your own uh, comment to us that the studio number is 010-140-302-0. Or Telegram at zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. Or finally, you can SMS us the old-fashioned way, as as Big Daddy Liberty would say, at two three four five one nine. Hi FM, your station of choice since two thousand and eight. I'd like to welcome our. Fascinating and <coughs> distinguished guest, Mr. John Kane Berman, who is currently a policy fellow at the Institute of Race Relations, but ran the Institute as CEO for 30 years. Welcome, John. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. John, what I wanted to ask you, you, you essentially you were, you were born in, sorry to put this out there, but you were born in 1946, so you literally lived through apartheid from beginning to end before we had negotiations and the advent of the of, of the democratic South Africa. Having been involved in the liberal fight against apartheid in one form or another of all of those years, was there anything in particular that was, of, of all the injustices, and there was, almost, there was nothing just about it, but was there an aspect, an injustice that was particularly heinous in your view? The worst aspect of apartheid in terms of its impact on ordinary people was the influx control system Mm -hmm. enforced via the past laws. Every African man, woman, and child 
over the age of 16 had to carry a pass and produce it on inspection to the police. Failure to do so would result in trial and a fine, if you were lucky, imprisonment, but perhaps worst of all, deportation from the urban areas to one or another homeland. And thousands of people on a weekly basis fell foul of these laws, were arrested, um, imprisoned in the back of police vans, driven off to prison to the magistrate's court, and ultimately deported from the urban areas. That was by far the worst aspect in terms of the number of victims and the daily brutality. Raids in the middle of the night on servants' quarters at the back of homes, raids on factory premises, and so on. It strikes me there's, there's, a, there's, a strange, there's a really bizarre element to that, and that in order to enforce influx control, it would have required a bureaucracy and a level of administration that one would really sort of con- consider in terms of, of the Nazi era. It, it was just, it, it would have had to have been large and so many, so much, so many resources would have had to have been devoted to a system that ultimately had to collapse in on, on itself. There was a vast bureaucracy headed by Bantu Affairs Commissioners, as they were called, all over the country. They had the powers of magistrates. Each district in the country had a chief Bantu Affairs Commissioner who had the powers of a chief magistrate. And in addition to that, you had a thing called the Bantu Reference Bureau in Pretoria, where there was a computerized fingerprint system whose aim was to capture the fingerprints of every black African in the entire country on a centralized computer so that if they were picked up by the police or asked to produce their passes, they could instantly be identified. It's, 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 it sounds truly, truly Orwellian in, 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 in nature. Can I ask another aspect is something that you would consider the, the, the greatest absurdity of apartheid or one of the manifestations of absurdity? The greatest absurdity was that the National Party knew that it couldn't run the economy without black workers and it recognized that black workers needed to have uh, trade union rights, that they needed to have increasing levels of education, but it didn't want to recognize them as citizens. So you had a system of increasing economic desegregation, which increased as the growth of the economy increased. We had an average rate of growth in the 1960s, of more than 6% real GDP growth a year. And more and more black people were coming to town. You were trying to restrict their numbers. And they had no political channels through which they could voice demands and aspirations. So you had people that were becoming increasingly economically enfranchised, and you subjected them to a system of political segregation, including... Let's not forget, 
forced removals of somewhere between two and three million people to the homelands on the grounds that these two to three million people were superfluous to the labor requirements of the white controlled economy. It was a system that was like trying to ride two horses going in totally different directions and it had to come apart and of course it did. Um, I know that you hold very strongly that the, the demise of apartheid had a lot, if not most, to do with ordinary people disregarding the rules in order to get on with their lives and, and make something of themselves. Would you elaborate on that? Well, the most important aspect of that was evident from some police figures. And if I remember correctly, between 1916 and 1965, some period like that, there were more than 17 million black people arrested under the past laws. I worked that out at the time. It was an average of 721 people every single day, Saturdays and Sundays and public holidays included for more than 60 years. Mm. Now, in 1986, the then state president, P.W. Boerter, repealed the past laws, which is what the liberals had been calling upon him to do year in and year out all along. And when he announced the repeal of the past laws, he said they had become unworkable. Mm. And the reason that they had become unworkable is that black people in the millions were doing the logical thing, moving from country to down. That's what people do throughout the ages, all over the world, throughout human history. They move from country to town where there are better jobs, better schools, better health care, and so on. And the fact that so many people had to be arrested indicated that it was impossible to enforce these laws without using more and more policemen to arrest more and more people. Mm. So it was ordinary black people on the ground, so to speak, mm. who simply voted with their feet against these laws and in favor of being able to live and work in the cities. And when P.W. Boerter repealed the laws, I give him great credit for doing so, he recognized a reality which had been created by black people on the ground with no particular political objectives. They just wanted to move to town and find jobs and work and housing and so on. And, of course, this, this was completely against the planning and the infrastructure and the move to, to rural areas, to homelands, that the, that the Nats had implemented up until now. So allowing or recognizing that people were coming into town, whether they liked it or not, meant they were underprovided for, presumably. Well, they were underprovided for. Um, there was a deliberate strategy to build more houses in homelands and only secondary schools in homelands so that if black people wanted better housing, if they wanted their children to go to secondary school, there were greater opportunities available in the homelands. Mm. But that didn't stop people moving to town for straightforward economic reasons. Mm. And, of course, there was another absurdity at the same time, the government introduced the Bantu Homeland Citizenship Act, 
which deprived all black people in the country of their South African citizenship. That was the intention. Mm. So that they would all become foreigners in their own country uh, using passes which had now become internal passports. Mm. It was crazy because a growing proportion of the workforce in the supposedly white areas, that's the 87% of the country that wasn't homelands, Mm -hmm. an increasing proportion of the workers there were black. Mm. What were the, what in your view were the, were the other factors that were perhaps most influential in seeing the demise of apartheid? The growth of the black trade union movement. Mm -hmm. It had been crushed through bannings of leaders and senior officials by successive governments in the 1950s and the 1960s. But in 1973, there was a strike or series of strikes by 60,000 workers in Durban Mm -hmm. and major but largely entirely peaceful marches throughout the city. Now, these black strikes were all illegal. And John Forster's government faced the choice of locking up thousands of black workers who were staging peaceful marches and peaceful (laughs) strikes. And to everybody's uh, amazement, John Forster did the logical thing. Instead of trying to lock up all the black workers, he lifted the ban on black strikes. So black workers now had the same rights to go on strike as white-colored and Indian workers had enjoyed for decades. And, of course, that began to shift the balance of bargaining power on the factory floor. The other thing that began to consolidate that shift in the bargaining power was that the growth rates of the 1960s caused the surplus of skills in the white population to dry up for the first time. Mm -hmm. The National Party government didn't want to invite too many immigrants into the country because most of the European countries willing to send Emigrants to South Africa were Roman Catholics, were Roman Catholic countries, and that's didn't like Roman Catholics. So they had to do the next best thing, which was to start employing black people in semi-skilled jobs. And John Forster in 1973, the same year as the strikes, made a speech to the Motor Industries Federation, and he said his government was no longer going to stand in the way of employers who wanted to employ black workers in semi-skilled jobs, provided it was done in an orderly fashion. That, of course, was code for provided it was done with the agreement of the white unions. But the white unions uh, were divided on this issue. Some were highly reactionary. They didn't want any blacks in any semi-skilled jobs. But others, including in particular the unions on the South African railways, white workers found that they couldn't do their own jobs properly without black assistance, but the law prevented blacks from being employed in semi-skilled operator-level jobs. So the white unions began to increase pressure 
for the liberalization of the industrial color bar. Mm. And eventually, in 1979, the government did the logical thing, which was to remove the ban on collective bargaining by black workers because the situation had developed in the 1970s. Black workers could be trained for semi-skilled jobs and then skilled jobs. They could go on strike, but they had no collective bargaining rights because those were confined to white-colored and Indian workers. So again, uh, it was now, I think, the P.W. Butter government did the logical thing. It gave African workers the same collective bargaining rights as all the others had, and that happened in 1979. Mm. It was a major shift in the balance of power on the factory floor, and, of course, that gave trade union organizations such as FASATU, uh, later renamed uh, COSATU after it had been hijacked by the ANC and the South African Congress of Trade Unions, the Communist Front Trade Union in Exile, but you had a complete shift mm. in the politics of the country because of the shift on the factory floor. I think, and that was really when I cut my, le- my legal teeth, so to speak, that what very few people know now is that a great deal of what we would call liberal labor law arose in that period. It didn't arise only from the ANC in 1996 when they when they uh, codified more of the Labor Relations Act and changed aspects of it. And I th- it, it's almost as if there's a this sort of amnesia about the extent to which those changes reflected what were ILO standards and uh, the demands from countries like America and countries in Europe. Yes, you're right. The, the color bar had been removed in its entirety from the country's industrial relations system 10, 11 years before Nelson Mandela was released from prison Mm. because one of the aspects of the reforms in 1979 was the lifting of restrictions on black people being employed and trained as apprentices. Mm. So we had, from 1979 onwards, a colorblind industrial relations system. Mm. No, that, that's ex- that's that's exactly as I remember it, and it, it, you know, one understood that it was to ensure uh, that there was labour available and to keep industrial peace. So, all of those things were, were as a normal a normal society should experience them. Can I ask at this point just to change tack a bit? Um, where did the ANC's struggle fit into the into the equation with regard to the, its effectiveness on the? on apartheid crumbling? Well, the ANC was caught flat-footed by the uprising in Soweto in 1976. You can read plenty of history books today that will give the ANC credit, but everybody working on it at the time knew perfectly well that the ANC had nothing whatever to do with the uprising in Soweto in 1976, which was really inspired by the black consciousness movement. But the ANC benefited because a police reign of terror in Soweto and other townships led to large numbers of students uh, leaving the country, many via Lesotho, ending up in Soviet training camps in the Crimea and elsewhere. And they came back 
in the late 1970s as insurgents, guerrillas, in the view of some people as terrorists. And that's when the ANC restarted the campaign of insurgency that had been crushed by National Party security legislation some years earlier. Mm -hmm. And the ANC then intensified its struggle, the People's War, in the mid-1980s in an effort to make the country ungovernable because what bothered them was that you might see a successful process of political transition which did not end in a People's Republic, which is what they wanted at that time and what they still want now. John, uh, we have to go to an ad break, but I'm going to pick up this conversation after, after we've done so. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. The general sense one had is that the, the armed struggle, as it was known, it's, I know it's been described as the least successful liberation struggle on the continent of Africa, but the ANC managed to create a narrative which suggests that their propaganda was more important, was more successful than their, than their armed struggle. Um, would I, would I be correct in that? Because they seem to have enormous amount of support, even though they weren't the only player in the game. Their propaganda was enormously successful. One of the stupidest things the National Party government ever did was to ban the ANC and the PAC in 1960. What happened was that they went into exile, set up headquarters in Lusaka, and then then began to mobilize support around the world. The other thing that happened is that they found themselves very closely allied with the South African Communist Party, which had been banned much earlier, and that had access to the Soviet Union, to the Comintern, and to the military and financial resources of the USSR and its East German and other satellites. So you had two things that happened simultaneously. The ANC found that it's, it had been captured intellectually mm-hmm. by the communists and arguably its political center of gravity today is still largely influenced by the communists in its ranks. And at the same time, it built up alliances around the world. The National Party, of course, was trying to defend an essentially immoral racist policy, so the ANC was on the, on the high ground. Come the 1980s and the intensification of the ANC's armed struggle, it had to ensure that P.W. Werther's liberalizing reforms were not viewed around the world as an alternative to armed struggle. And that meant capturing organizations such as the UN Special Committee Against Apartheid, uh, capturing the anti-apartheid movements around the world, um, getting money from countries such as Sweden, as well as from the USSR, 
from all sorts of aid organizations funneled through churches in Germany, uh, Switzerland, the U.S., and elsewhere. And it used these contacts and these resources in order to undermine the credibility of the National Party government. And one of the things that helped it enormously in that respect was the brutality that the National Party security forces used in order to deal with disturbances in black townships. Mm. And people around the world saw policemen shambucking black demonstrators, uh, shooting them on occasion, uh, arresting them, states of emergency, and so on. Mm. And here was the National Party government using brutal means to defend an immoral policy, and obviously the ANC won that propaganda war hands down. Mm. I mean, just to go back to the st- when they started the armed struggle, they basically the ANC said that they had no choice. Um, they'd been banned. There was no, there was an alternative. They'd tried everything else. Surely they hadn't tried everything else. Well, the ANC split in uh, the late 1950s. Um, the ANC essentially split between the two, the Latuli wing, the people that believed in non-violent resistance, mobilization lawfully on the ground, and that section of the ANC even today probably uh, is most uh, importantly represented by Chief Budulezi's in Cardiff Freedom Party. And then you had the other ANC, which was in an alliance with the South African Communist Party, with the South African Congress of Trade Unions, heavily under Soviet influence, adopting armed struggle as a strategy. They hadn't exhausted all non-violent options, although, of course, the terrain was very, very difficult, mm-hmm. operating under banning orders. But uh, in Carter had proved that you could actually mobilize on the ground uh, without violence because by the mid-1970s, by far the largest political organization in the country's history in terms of signed-up membership was in Carter Yankululeko Yasizwe. Chief Burulezi could pack the Orlando Stadium and the Jabulani Stadium and other stadiums around the country with tens of thousands of people. Mm. But because he eschewed violence, uh, he was able to get away with it, despite the fact that the National Party government felt extremely uncomfortable with Mm. this. So you could mobilize on the ground, even though it was difficult. Mm. One gets a sense from the success of their propaganda that that they could have made a huge impact without resorting to armed struggle, excluding it completely. They could have, but don't forget... Uh, this was at the, not the height, um, we didn't know it at the time, but it was the tail end <laughs> yeah. of, of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And the Soviets had every reason to destabilize supposedly Western-orientated governments such as that in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So the Soviets, uh, with Mkonte Wesizwe as uh, their instrument, had every reason to pursue violent strategies not as simply as tactics but as ideological objectives. They wanted to destabilize 
countries that were sympathetic to the Western liberal democratic tradition and way of life. So the ANC was but one of a number of proxies worldwide for the Soviet Union. Proxy is probably too strong a word, but certainly uh, they were all within that broad camp of organizations hostile to Western liberal democratic values and traditions. And, of course, the ANC is still in that camp, although the Soviet Union is no longer around in that guise, although in many ways Mr. Putin is not terribly different. Yeah, That's... uh there seems to be almost very difficult to explain, other than perhaps in almost religious terms, that the, the adherence to a philosophy that has, is, has largely died, um, or the countries with it, the, the practices that have disintegrated, and the countries left over of in appalling shape that follow a socialist model, and and that's what we're tussling with is that sort of adherence. Well. The few Russians that I've spoken to in Moscow and elsewhere find it difficult to believe that any organization could still believe in all that nonsense. <laughs> that, that is probably as damning as it gets. Before we close, and I'd like to thank uh, um, John very much for, the, for, for his participation, the following. Happy Purim. Let the Chev help you fulfill the important mitzvah of Matanot Levyonim, dispensing charity to the poor. They are fully endorsed by the Beth Din, so here are your options. Donate online using the Chevra Kadisha Smart Can app and stand a chance to win a smartphone. Or get down to a hotspot now at Kosher World Genesis, the Sandringham Strip or Josie Blue to make your donation. Or simply denote, den- donate online at www.jhbchev.co.za. All the money collected must be distributed today to Jewish people in need of food, shelter and health care. We know it's crazy busy day, so hurry, don't delay. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. I, thank you and welcome back. I would really just like to formally thank uh, colleague John Kane Berman for historical overview that I think very few people know or appreciate and I hope to get him back on a whole range of aspects in due course. From the point of view of what we'll be looking at in the week to come, the ongoing government hearings or parliamentary hearings into the expropriation without compensation continue, and we will probably be very watchful of those that happen in Gauteng, although there are not that many places that they are happening, to see how these hearings are actually conducted. The other thing is obviously the, the worldwide implosion, coronavirus, oil price, etc., that is causing havoc on the market. So we will continue to look at that. From the point of view of, I think that will probably pretty much carry us through in the next week. I can't offhand think of anything additional to watch, but things change very, very quickly. And we will then really (laughs) have to try and put another a, 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 a spin on it that is interesting and different. So from that point of view, please stay tuned in. Um, we are available on podcast and we will see you next week.